1: This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. I'm Liv, your resident nerd who's getting more and more excited by the moment for not only the end of this story, but what's coming next. Spoilers, his name is Odysseus and he encounters literally every cool-ass monster you could imagine. Cyclops, witches, sirens, you guys, just so many fun things. Anyway, we're not there yet. We still get to hear the insane ending to the story of Orestes and Electra, and what results from their anger toward their mother and her new husband, Aegisthus, for what they did to the children's father, Agamemnon, who, of course, also killed their sister. Convoluted? What's convoluted? This is episode 46, Matricide Mania! Furies, furies everywhere! The Orestia, Part 3 Where we left our intrepid siblings on the last episode of this series, Electra and Orestes plan to kill both Aegisthus, their mother's new husband, and their mother herself. But it is, of course, our badass and very, very angry Electra who will do the killing of their mother. They have with them Pylades, Orestes' friend, who doesn't really say much in the play Electra, but he's there and the old man who rescued Orestes from Argos when the plotting of Aegisthus and Clytemnestra began those many years ago. Orestes, Pylades, and the old man have left to work through their end of the plot to kill Aegisthus. Electra, meanwhile, is waiting for her mother to arrive. Clytemnestra will be told that her only living daughter, Electra, has just but given birth to a son, and she'll be more than eager to visit her daughter and her new grandson. Screams are heard in the distance, and before long, a messenger arrives to tell Electra that Agisthus has been killed. Agisthus has been killed. Electra is flooded with relief that her brother has succeeded and is not the one that was heard screaming from within the palace those moments ago. But also, she's curious. She asks the messenger who's brought her this news, how, how did her brother succeed in killing Aegisthus? We met him on the road, as planned, the messenger tells Electra. He was picking Myrtle, and he noticed us driving up in our chariot. He asked us who we were and what we were doing on the road. Orestes told him we were from Thessaly and on our way to sacrifice to Zeus. Aegisthus stopped us, He asked us to feast with him, and that he would himself be sacrificing an ox to the nymphs that very day. He told us he wouldn't take no for an answer, and so he brought us to the palace, the messenger describes to Electra. In the palace, the guards stopped their guarding of Aegisthus and instead began the preparations for the sacrifice. Aegisthus then began speaking to the nymphs who would soon receive the sacrifice. He asks them for protection for him and Clytemnestra, and that their enemies find the opposite. Have I, have I mentioned that I love Euripides? What beautifully crafted drama. Imagine being in the audience and watching the story unfold, hearing about this man about to sacrifice to the gods, honoring them in the best way he can, and here he is, in front of the man who's about to kill him, asking for protection and doom for his enemies. His enemies being the man who's about to kill him, and his sister, who's hearing the story. But I digress, because I love Euripides. I have a guest star again. It's been a while since he's been on the podcast. Lupin, do you want to say hello? It's a snow day, so the cat's inside, and looking for a lot of attention. The messenger continues, telling Electra that after he'd prayed to the gods, Aegisthus pulled out a large knife and begins the sacrifice. And when it's done, he turns to Orestes and, handing him the knife, tells him that he's heard of the talent the Salians have in quartering animals. Ah, what a skill to be known for. Orestes, with a glint in his eye, takes the knife and cuts up the ox. Examining it, this gets suspicious. He tells the man he doesn't know is Orestes that he fears a plot by none other than Orestes. Somehow he's able to tell Orestes is not from Thessaly in the way he takes apart this animal. And man, the lives of the ancient Greeks were something else, am I right? I mean, how do they know that? And just FYI, I am leaving out a lot of details when it comes to the cutting up of this animal. Like, no holds barred for Euripides when it comes to this shit. But Orestes powers through, not taking the bait and continuing to prepare the animal for the sacrifice. Aegisthus, still uncertain, bends down to examine the entrails. Seriously, what is this life? As Aegisthus is bent over, examining way too closely the bloody, nasty bits of a dismembered animal, Orestes raises his arm high above Agisthus, meat cleaver in hand, and brings it down on his spine, breaking his back with a fucking meat cleaver. This bloody, horrific death of Aegisthus raises some suspicions of the palace servants, the messenger tells Electra in a much more dramatic way than I just did. But Orestes thinks quickly, and he tells the servants who he is. He calls on them to think of his father, who they served for years, and not to kill his son. One of the servants, who has been with the family many, many years, recognizes Orestes, and they quickly side with him. Aegisthus is not a popular leader, it would seem, and so the messenger tells Electra, Orestes has succeeded, and in fact, he's on his way here now. He's not holding a gorgon's head in triumph, no, it's something far more satisfying. Orestes approaches, holding Aegisthus's head. Euripides is awesome. Electra and her chorus of women are so thrilled, so thrilled that they'll soon see a bloody, nasty, severed head, and they decide, now's the time to do a little dance. And dance they do. Finally, Orestes arrives with Pylades. He's holding a sack. Behind him, servants carry the body of Aegisthus. They're really making a show of this. Electra is thrilled, and she throws herself at her brother, praising him endlessly for doing away with who they call their father's murderer. They appear, for the moment, to have forgotten about their mother's role entirely. In triumph, Orestes thanks the gods and playfully throws Aegisthus' head at Electra's feet. Ah, brotherly affection. Electra looks down at her feet, where the head of the man she blames for her father's death and her own ruin stares back up at her. She has things to say to Aegisthus, things she's planned to say a hundred times, but could never say out loud to him. So, she speaks. Electra tells Aegisthus what he's done to her family. She blames him for her father's death, for poisoning her mother against him while her father was away at war, for marrying her mother only moments after they'd killed Agamemnon, for orphaning her and Orestes and ruining them for forcing her to marry this farmer, turning her from a princess to a peasant. Electra rails against Aegisthus, everything he did and everyone he hurt. It's quite the speech, but not one I can do justice here. The point is, Electra is mad, and she's fucking glad this man is dead and that his head is at her feet. When she's finished, they have the servants bring Aegisthus' body inside so it doesn't tip off Clytemnestra, In good timing, too, because only moments later, they spot her as she travels toward Electra's cottage. As Electra and Orestes watch their mother approach, Orestes gets cold feet. How can I kill my mother, the woman who raised me? Orestes asks Electra. She tells him he can do it, just as she killed their father. Orestes, though, is still unsure. He calls out in anger that the oracles instructed him to do this in the first place. What was Apollo thinking? But Electra, Electra perseveres. She's not troubled by the idea at all, and somehow it's transformed that Orestes will do it, even though she was so sure about herself earlier. She wants her mother dead, and he's going to do it. Electra reassures her brother, telling him that Apollo told him to do it, so surely it's the right thing to do. She reminds him that their mother killed their father, that she betrayed him with Aegisthus and betrayed her children in her decisions. Electra is fucking pissed, and she's not budging on the whole matricide issue. Orestes, though, is thinking about the consequences. If he kills his mother, he'll be banished. But if he doesn't, Electra tells him, he'll be guilty of disobeying the gods. Orestes questions everything. Is it enough that he was instructed by Apollo's oracle to kill his mother? Does that make it all right? But it's clear now. Orestes isn't in charge of this plan. He started it, sure. He showed up with the grand plan to kill them both and be done with it. But it's Electra, though, who's far more certain of herself. She takes charge, and she doesn't let Orestes back out of this plan. Finally, she instructs him to go inside and prep things. Prepare the trap, just as Clytemnestra prepared the trap for Agamemnon. And so, once again, Euripides makes it clear why I choose his version of many stories in the ancient Greek canon. Electra may be a dark soul here, ruined by the tragedy in her life. She may be hell-bent on having her own mother killed, no matter the consequences. But she's still a she, and she's very much in charge. Here, Electra is a woman with agency— Sure, it's a dark fucking agency, and she probably should have found a way to just see a therapist instead of taking out her deep-seated anger in this way, but regardless, she's fucking in charge, and it's badass. Clytemnestra arrives at Electra's cottage her daughter still waiting outside to greet her mother, her mother who she hasn't seen in so long since Electra was essentially ostracized by Aegisthus. Clytemnestra greets her daughter, making a point of noting that the slave women she has with her are from Troy, that they're Clytemnestra's property in exchange for the daughter she lost. Electra gives zero fucks about that and greets her mother by repeatedly noting that because of Aegisthus, and because Clytemnestra and her new husband killed Electra's father, that she herself has become a slave, forced to live far below her station, forced into an entirely different life simply because of the choices of her mother, Electra does not hold back. But the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and so Clytemnestra tells her exactly why she killed Agamemnon. Clytemnestra recalls to Electra what happened to Iphigenia, how when Clytemnestra married Agamemnon in the first place, there was no agreement on having to lose one of her children to him, how if Agamemnon had needed to kill Iphigenia to save their other children, or to save countless of other people, perhaps then it could have been more understandable to her. But no, he did it because Helen had run away with Paris and he wanted to wage war. There was no righteous reason to have her daughter killed. And not only that, Clytemnestra tells Electra, but when he returned from war, he returned with a woman he wanted to install as another wife. And that was it, Clytemnestra explains. But in return for his bringing back another woman, Clytemnestra found herself another man. But, she says, it's only ever the women that get blamed, or thought poorly of, for decisions like this. Agamemnon brought home another woman, but is that mentioned? No, just that Clytemnestra was with the geese this. It's never the men who started it in the first place to get blamed. Never the men. Even when they cheated first. Anyway, I love Euripides. Clytemnestra even poses an alternative history to this. What if, she asks Electra, it was Menelaus who was stolen off to Troy? Would she, Clytemnestra, have been expected to kill Orestes? How would Agamemnon have reacted if that had been the case? So Clytemnestra makes her case that had Agamemnon not killed Iphigenia, had he not brought Cassandra back with him to act as his concubine wife, she would have had no reason to kill him. And with that, she tells Electra to speak freely, to tell her why it wasn't just that Clytemnestra murdered Electra's father. And Electra does. She also makes some less-than-ideal points from a feminism perspective— Electra tells her mother from the moment Agamemnon left for Troy, she was doing things she shouldn't, making herself look as beautiful as she could, acting as though her husband wasn't away from war. Not great, Electra, but you're mad, we get it. Electra does rightly point out to Clytemnestra that regardless of what Agamemnon did to deserve death, did Orestes and Electra deserve exile? Aegisthus didn't receive exile for what he did. Instead, it was her own surviving children who were exiled. He got to live in the palace, their childhood home, whereas they were forced to live among peasants, a very different life than they'd had before. Electra finishes with this, If the murder of my father was justice for the murder of my sister, then the murder of you, Clytemnestra, by me and Orestes, is justice for the murder of your husband. Clytemnestra tries to show remorse for what she did, tries to suggest that Electra can be let back into the fold, that Aegisthus will no longer treat her as he did, but of course, that's not enough. Finally, they get to the reason Clytemnestra believes she's been brought here, to sacrifice in celebration of Electra's new child being ten days old. Electra welcomes her mother into her home. Once Clytemnestra is inside and Electra has followed her, screams, ring out. The chorus recalls what's happening. Murder for murder. The screaming continues. Finally, Orestes and Electra come out of the cottage... They're covered in their mother's blood. And the siblings immediately regret what they've done. What follows is an ode, spoken in strophes and antistrophes. Orestes to Electra, them both to the chorus, the chorus to them. It's written to be poetic, almost like a song. As Electra and Orestes look at what they've done, they think about their mother when she was that, their mother, the one that they loved. The chorus asks them to think about how they were able to do it, how they were able to kill their own mother. The play doesn't side with anyone. There's no right answer, no one who's righteous here. It's just death, murder, family members killing family members. bear with me as we transition to Euripides' other play, Orestes. The fate of Electra and Orestes is theirs because of this curse, the curse on the house of Atreus. The curse of Tantalus and Pelops and Niobe and Atreus and Thyestes and Aegisthus and Agamemnon, and now, Orestes and Electra. There's just no way to escape that family unscathed. It's been six days since Orestes, with the help of Electra, killed their mother, Clytemnestra. Six days, and Orestes is now bedridden with a horrible illness brought on by the Furies, the Arenaways, or... When the humans are trying to get on their good side, they call them the humanities, the kindly ones. When he's lucid, Orestes cries and cries for what they've done, and when he's not, he's struck with madness, running around as though he has no idea what's going on. Electra explains that due to their matricide, the people of Argos have been instructed not to harbor them in any way, and so for now, they're outcasts. Still within their city, still within the palace, but that may not last much longer. The city is to take a vote on whether the pair will be stoned to death. But there's some hope, Electra explains to the audience, having given them a rundown of where things stand. Menelaus has returned and hopes to help the siblings. As Electra sits at the side of Orestes, who lays still as though he's already died, Helen enters. That's right, Helen, of all the trouble in the world, has been brought to Argos by Menelaus, though he's hidden her away from many of the people in the palace. And with him in Argos is Hermione, their daughter from long before the Trojan War. Helen is a bit of a bitch, honestly, and the first thing she notes to Electra is that Electra's still unmarried. So she's off to a good start, making up for, in a way, starting the biggest and longest war Greece has ever seen. She wishes to visit her sister's tomb to bring some offerings, though she doesn't dare be seen by anyone related to someone who died in Troy. So her daughter Hermione visits for her, after Electra pretty rightly notes that it shouldn't be Electra who does it. Helen leaves, and Electra's found a new person to blame for everything that's happened though she's not the only one to blame. Electra has no qualms about continuing to blame Apollo and his oracle. The oracle told Orestes to kill his mother. That was clear. So why is he being punished as though this act was not requested by the gods? Orestes wakes up, and for a moment he's sane. Electra explains to him that Menelaus has arrived. With any luck, he can help them, though he's brought with them Helen. Oh, how they hate Helen. Not only is she the one blamed for the war itself, but she's Clytemnestra's sister, and nothing good can come from that. But it isn't long before Orestes' madness, brought on by the Furies, comes back. He calls out as if they're attacking him right there. Eyes of blood, hair of snakes... The women hound him, brought on by Apollo, and as punishment for his matricide. The madness of Orestes in this play would have been incredible to watch live. Not only does he swat away invisible furies in these fits, but he believes he's been given a bow and arrow from Apollo himself, gifted specifically to ward off the furies. Alone with Electra Orestes fits an arrow in his invisible bow, pulls back, and lets loose at the furies that are only there in his mind, all the while speaking of them and the oracle that brought him to this place to begin with. When Orestes comes to, he sees Electra there crying. He tries to reassure her that this is not her fault, that it is his and it is Apollo and the oracle's fault that their mother is dead. Yet, as we just heard in the first half of this episode, it's very easy to argue that it's Electra's fault. Orestes questioned whether he should, or whether he even wanted, to kill his mother. But she pushed on. Electra pushed him to kill their mother. But the earlier play is called Electra, and this one is called Orestes, and therein lies the difference. It's fascinating what Euripides was doing with these two plays. They're vastly different in tone, and the way they're put together... For the zillionth time, I'd highly recommend you read them both. I can tell you the stories, but I can only tell you so much about the brilliance that was Euripides. Finally, Electra leaves Orestes alone, but just for a while, and she enters the palace. And so he's left with his own thoughts, his own visions of the Furies, the Humanities, as he calls them. And I must say, in this translation, he calls them, quote, fast, furious, winged goddesses. I just found that a little too funny. I'd now like to believe this is where they got the title for the movies. That checks out, right? This begins a truly stunning speech from Orestes. I wish I could recite it to you, but, you know, copyright and whatnot. But I can tell you that in preparing this, I did just read it out loud dramatically to myself, wishing I could do the same for you. But what that brought me in reading the last line is a memory I hope is true. The last lines of Orestes' speech are another callback to the curse on the house of Atreus that began those generations ago with Tantalus and, quote, thanks to that first union union. From the gods. If I recall correctly, this line led to a discussion in one of my favorite classes in all of my undergrad, a Greek drama class I've mentioned in the past and where we covered only variations of this story. And so we discussed what Euripides meant by union here, as there was certainly no marriage between anyone related to Tantalus and any of the gods. And so, did union mean when Tantalus caused a part of his own son to be eaten by one of the gods? Was the union quite literally a god being unified with a mortal by consuming his flesh? Ah, a rare moment where I straight up miss university. But I digress a little too much, I would say, and so I'll bring us back to this story by noting that here, after this incredible speech by Orestes, Menelaus enters. Menelaus enters and asks the chorus of women where he might find his nephew, Orestes. Orestes, though, is just off to the side, and before the women can point a finger, he runs up and wraps himself around his uncle's legs in the supplicant position. Menelaus has heard of what's happened to his brother Agamemnon and to Clytemnestra in return, and Orestes doesn't mince words. He's eager to admit to his crimes to Menelaus in an attempt to find some sort of salvation with his uncle, king of Sparta. The two discuss what's happened, how Orestes was told by the oracle to do the deed, and how he's now being haunted by the Furies, the Eumenides, in exchange for the matricide he committed. But this whole affair appears to warrant all the drama you can imagine, because now another man arrives, Tyndareus father of Helen and Clytemnestra. He's there to speak with Menelaus, but of course he immediately spots Orestes and is pretty annoyed to see him there, given he's so recently killed Tindarius's daughter, Orestes' own mother. Menelaus being, well, you remember him from the war. He stands up for Orestes, noting that Agamemnon is his father, and so Orestes is his nephew, and he's there to listen to him. Now, Tindarius is no saint. His speech to Menelaus and Orestes is something else. He notes that, sure, his daughter killed her husband, and that was pretty awful, but that she should have been exiled as usual, rather than killed, and fine, he's not wrong there. But then he brings up Helen out of nowhere, calling her a vile woman, and that he basically hates her too, so maybe this dude shouldn't have had daughters. And fine, his wife did have sex with a swan and then laid some eggs, and from those came four children, and fine. There are a zillion different myths that tell a zillion different versions as to who was actually Tyndarius's child. But even in this rambling nonsense of mine, he's still kind of a dick. Orestes tries to defend himself, but Tyndarius isn't having it. Before he leaves, he emphasizes to Menelaus the strength of his anger at this situation. He tells Menelaus that if he remains and helps Orestes and Electra out of this, he's no longer welcome in Sparta at all because I guess Menelaus is king, but Tyndareus is still there and in control somehow? Menelaus obviously is pretty concerned by this development, but still, he lets Orestes make his point. Orestes then explains that he doesn't want anything from Menelaus that wasn't already given to him. What Orestes wants is, simply, repayment for what Agamemnon gave to Menelaus all those years ago. When Menelaus' wife ran off with Paris, Orestes points out, his father Agamemnon came to his aid without question. And, Orestes specifies, what he needs in return from Menelaus won't take ten years, nor does it require him to sacrifice his daughter, Hermione. All Orestes wants from Menelaus in return for what Agamemnon did for him is protection. Brief protection for Orestes and Electra. Seems like a damn fine exchange for me. I'll also point out just how blunt Orestes is when he notes Menelaus doesn't need to sacrifice Hermione. In this translation, he essentially says, Yeah, and you remember how my father killed my sister for good wind for your war? I'll let you have that. You don't need to sacrifice your own daughter in exchange. Anyway, it's great, and Orestes is being pretty awesome here. Menelaus' response, though, is disappointing. He claims to Orestes that he doesn't have the military might just now. He can't defeat the Argives that would surely go up against him. That if he's to help, he must find a way to use cunning rather than power. Which, you know, means basically nothing right now when Orestes and Electra are facing death. And with that, Menelaus leaves. And Orestes is pissed. people of Argos vote, the siblings are to die. But Orestes catches them just after, and convinces them not to stone them to death, but that he and his sister will kill themselves instead. Orestes and Electra deal with this news, finding some solace in each other. And Orestes' friend Pylades, he's still there too. And if he was almost entirely silent in Electra, he's got some things to say now. Pylades proposes that, in exchange for Menelaus refusing to help Orestes and Electra, they kill Helen. Because, I mean, at this point, why not? Pylades proposes that they kill Helen not only to punish Menelaus, but also to redeem themselves in the eyes of the Argives and the Greeks more broadly. Is there a more hated woman in all of Greece? The plan would be this. Electra, Orestes, and Pylades would go into the palace, intending to kill themselves as they agreed to. They would encounter Helen and explain to her what's happening, that they are being forced to die. She would, they assume, at least pretend to be upset for them, at which point they would whip out the swords they'd have hidden in their clothes and BAM! Super dead Helen. The assumption, then, is that Orestes would no longer be considered a mother-killer. Instead, he would be lauded as having avenged all the fathers, sons, brothers, husbands who died in Troy, all on behalf of Helen. It's a super fucking dark plan, if I'm being honest. Electra, while not totally against Pylades' super-fucking-dark plan, has an addition she believes will keep them all alive. She explains to Orestes and Pylades that Hermione, Menelaus and Helen's daughter, is at Clytemnestra's tomb at that very moment, pouring libations for her aunt on behalf of Helen herself. They must take her hostage when she returns. With Hermione as their hostage, they'll have a way out, should Menelaus attempt to kill them once they've killed Helen. They'll simply threaten to kill Hermione, too, Electra proposes, because everyone in this story is super fucked up. To this, Orestes tells Electra that, physically, she's as much a woman as any other, but her mind is that of a man's. Which normally I might take some offense to, but given he's telling her this because she's willing to kill with little to no necessity, I think he's kind of right. Orestes and Pylades head into the palace to prepare their part of the plan, the third murder they're about to put to their name, while Electra remains outside waiting for Hermione to return. She recruits the chorus of women to help her dividing them off so they may watch the road, both for Hermione and to warn anyone else who might be approaching who might throw a wrench in their maniacal, murderous plan. Before long, screams echo from within the palace. Once more, we hear a woman crying out as she's being murdered by Orestes. This time, it's Helen screaming out for Menelaus, who is far from earshot. Meanwhile, outside, Electra and the chorus hear this, and they... Well, they start singing a song about killing Helen, because this is one of the darkest stories in Greek mythology, and as a result, one of my favorites. They make up a song and sing and dance to it while a woman is being murdered inside. As her mother is being brutally murdered inside, Hermione approaches, fresh from Clytemnestra's tomb. Electra stops her, telling her the news that she and her brother are to be put to death. Hermione's a nice girl who doesn't deserve any of this, not to mention her name is Hermione. And she's very sad for Electra and Orestes, treating them like the family they are. But Electra's pretty damn sociopathic at this point, so she has no problem guiding Hermione indoors where her mother has just been killed and where she's to become a hostage. Have I mentioned that I love Euripides? It's not always because ladies have actual roles in society, sometimes it's because he writes the most fucked up versions of stories. not long before menelaus arrives at the palace having heard that orestes and pilates have killed his wife as soon as he does orestes and pilates appear at a tower above where menelaus stands they have hermione with them and are holding a sword to her throat orestes calls down his terms convince the argives to allow electra and i to stay in our palace and live as we always have or else we'll kill your daughter Definitely a totally normal conversation to be having, and definitely not insane at all. You want to stay in your home and hometown after you've killed the new king, your mother the queen, and her sister, who also, fine, happens to be the most hated woman in all of Greece. Menelaus is pretty surprised by this whole thing, and doesn't really know how to handle it. First, he tries to call Orestes bluff, noting he won't actually kill Hermione. But Orestes pushes on, and Menelaus quickly agrees he does indeed want his daughter to live. Instead, though, of trying to get Orestes what he wants, he calls out to the people of Argos. Aren't they going to come and try to save Hermione? Aren't they angry that this man wants to be able to stay in Argos after what he's done? Oh, would you shut up? A booming voice calls. Though I'm paraphrasing a little. As Apollo himself appears above, with him is Helen. First, Apollo says, turning to Orestes, would you take your sword away from that poor girl's throat? You see here, I rescued Helen, who you failed to kill, after all your killing. She'll live as an immortal, alongside her brothers, the twins, Castor and Pollux. Polyduke's is his Greek name, but everyone knows him as Pollux, and I don't want to say the other name. You, Orestes, for all your bullshit, you will need to live for one year outside of Argos, and after that, you must submit yourself to a trial in Athens, where the gods and the humanities will be the judge of you for what you've done. Hermione, who, you know, you've just threatened to kill, she'll be your wife. Isn't that romantic? Okay, I'm really paraphrasing Apollo here, but I like to think this is how he would have handled these types of matters. He goes on. Hermione was supposed to marry Neoptolemus, or, at least, he thought that's what would happen. But he's going to my oracle to ask for compensation for the death of his father Achilles, and there he's going to die by the Delphic sword. That guy's a huge asshole, though, so no one will miss him. Again, paraphrasing Apollo here. And Electra, you'll marry Pylades, unclear of what's become from your husband of the earlier play. I can't confidently say whether I missed that detail or Euripides did, but regardless, that's the plan. It was also the plan at the end of Electra, but I had to cut that part in order to make the two plays work together. Menelaus, Apollo says, turning to him. You'll need to find another wife. This one is simply too beautiful and too much trouble. You'll stay ruling Sparta and Orestes will get to rule Argos after all his banishment and trial and such is over with. Orestes is over the moon about this. He takes back all the hate he had directed at Apollo, which was a lot, and tells him that his oracle prophecies were true, and oh, everything is just wonderful now. Menelaus says goodbye to Helen, and she flies away with Apollo, and that's the end of the darkest play ever. It all ends with a happily ever after. Thank you all for listening. As usual, you're all lovely people, and I can't believe I get to come into your lives every week with a story from my favorite topic in the world. I know I've complained a bit about how much work this all is, and don't get me wrong, it is. But it's also the most lovely thing to have this many people waiting patiently for the next episode. Seriously, you guys keep me going. This episode was, once again, based primarily on Euripides' plays Electra and Orestes, This episode is really half and half, including some finagling to make them fit together as they're both two separate pieces. Electra has an end that does not mesh with Orestes at all, but I made it work. My copy of Electra is translated by John Davey, and my copy of Orestes is translated by Robin Waterfield. I will note that in order to put these two plays together into one coherent story, like I said, the ending of Electra needed to be changed. It ends in a way that could make it a standalone, and so when you turn it to Orestes, much of what's described at the end of Electra doesn't actually happen. For instance, different gods tell Electra to marry Pylades at the end of Electra, and then Apollo just tells her to do it again at the end of Orestes. I'd highly recommend you read them both anyway, because Euripides is awesome, but also because of a dramatic device that exists in many Greek dramas. You'll have heard this term before, deus ex machna. It's used now to mean ghost in the machine, but what it really means is god in the machine, and was originally used to refer to this device. Gods appear at the end of a play to force a resolution, whatever it might be. In the end of Electra, Castor and Pollux, the twin brothers of Helen and Clytemnestra who've been deified, appear to tell Orestes and Electra how to handle what they've just done. And, of course, Apollo appears here using the same device. Often it's the only god's appearance in Greek dramas, and frankly, I love it. Though it does kind of wrap things up in a bow in a funny way. Everything was kind of in the middle of happening at Orestes there. And then, bam, Apollo's here. It's all over. As I mentioned in previous episodes, you can also refer to Aeschylus as Oresteia, which are three plays about this story, or Sophocles as Electra and Orestes. They all wrote their own versions, with certain details changed. I go with Euripides because... He likes women for the most part and also he likes violence and craziness and it's just a bit more exciting and, well, I have to read the whole damn things just to tell you guys, so I'm gonna find the fun ones. On another note... For you wonderful Patreon patrons, I have finally released another episode for the $5 and up Patreon tier. So if you donate a minimum of $5 a month, one, thank you. And two, there's a new episode live on the Patreon where I regale you with my trip to the ancient Acropolis. I learned so much from my visit there and the new Acropolis Museum and all sorts of other ways, and I wanted to put that into an episode for you all so you can feel like you were there too. The episode corresponds to a page on my website where I've included pictures from the areas I talk about, with descriptions so you can see exactly what I was seeing and what I'm describing in the episode. If you just want to look at those pictures, it's mythsdayby.com slash Acropolis. If you're not a patron and you're interested in hearing about this with the pictures, consider becoming one. Donating just $5 a month helps me so much, and you get access to a few extra episodes— this is also the beginning of a series. I'll also be covering the Parthenon itself in its own episode, as well as Delphi, and maybe more depending on how much content I have. I'm also working on getting out the episode of the movie Troy, where I talk about both how attractive many of the men are and how weirdly romanticized the whole thing is. Truly, though, I love you all. Thank you so much for listening and for recommending me to your friends or to other podcast listeners in general. It's so helpful, and I'm so grateful. You're the best. I'm Liv, and I love this shit, especially when this shit has furies.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet?
3: Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.